All right, so this session is going to give an overview and introduction to the Pali Canon. And just for the benefits of the video, it's being recorded at Insight Santa Cruz on January 15, 2017. It's fine to share this video freely in an unedited form, so in its entirety. So many of you know me, but in case not, my name is Kim Allen, and I'm one of the teachers here. And I'm offering this session as a practitioner who has benefited greatly from the study of the suttas. I've um, studied them for many years, and I've been fortunate to have uh, both teachers and also doing it on my own. My teachers include Gil Fransdahl, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Analio, and Shaila Catherine. And I really thank them for introducing me to these uh, amazing texts. So we're going to be learning about the Pali Canon. You can see that I've brought some of the books, and it's a large volume of literature. This isn't even all of it. So we have several purposes today. The first is that we're going to learn about these texts that inspire the practices that are at, are at the heart of what we do in the insight tradition. Uh, for those who haven't heard the word insight tradition before, it's because it's slowly being coined. It's a, you know, this is the meditation movement in the West that grew out of the Theravadan tradition in Asia, and we'll talk more about that, what that is, as we get into the historical overview. It's also called Vipassana practice, and it's related to the broader movement that's called mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. These texts are called the Pali Canon, and we'll learn why that is and what that means. And we'll learn also what each of these books is and its function and some of the um, texts that it contains. We're also going to consider various ways of reading the texts, reading these scriptures, because there are a lot of different ways, and we have choices about how we engage with them. And it's important, first of all, to know how it is that we're reading a text. And also it's important to respect the other ways that people might be reading the texts. And then we'll actually look at a couple of texts. You guys have handouts, and we're going to read uh, at least two that are very different and uh, get a flavor of the different styles that there are in the polycanon. So what is the polycanon? It's a collection of sacred literature that was originally composed as oral texts. These were um, passed down uh, orally for several centuries as we'll see. Over time, though, they were preserved and then written down in Pali, which is an ancient Indian language that's related to the language that the Buddha spoke, although we don't know exactly what the Buddha spoke. These texts record the teachings that are attributed to the Buddha and to some of his major disciples, including spoken discourses, analyses, poems, rules for monastic living, stories, a lot of things, and we'll describe um, them a bit more in a moment. Pali, this language that I mentioned, is related to Sanskrit, but it's more of a spoken language, whereas Sanskrit is considered more of a literary language. As I said, it's not exactly known what language the Buddha spoke. He was from that same area in India, but there were a lot of different dialects. And Pali was a convenient language to write the text down in at the time that they were being recorded, which was a few centuries after the Buddha's death. 
I first want to go through the actual texts, what these different volumes are. And you should have um, this handout that says the Pali Canon at the top that has kind of a, a tree showing uh, the relationship of the different texts. So the Pali Canon is also is called also the Tapitaka, which means three baskets. And that's because it has three major collections at the top level, and those are diagrammed on this chart. The first is what's called the Vinaya, and that is the rules for monastic living. It consists of five books. So the monks that you sometimes see teaching here or at other places are people who have ordained and agreed to uh, uphold the 227 precepts that are given for monks, and nuns have even more. And these are all recorded in the Vinaya, along often with stories that give the context of why that rule came into play and um, anything else that might be relevant for understanding how to follow it. That's, so that's the first basket. The second basket is the Sutta Pitaka, and these are the discourses, the spoken discourses or sermons or teachings that was given uh, by the Buddha or by his major disciples. Some of them are. And this consists, this is the largest one, it consists, well, I'll be careful. <laughs> this one consists of five additional collections, which are the ones here. I'll go over them in a, in a second. Um, these are four of them, and then the uh, fifth are uh, a set of smaller books. And then the third basket is what's called the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And I don't have all of the Abhidhamma here. It's very big. Um, but it has consists of seven books that are listed here. Just the names of them are listed. What we have in English mostly is this book called A Comprehensive Manual of Abhidhamma. And this is not the whole thing by any stretch. This is a commentary on the first and last, the first and seventh books of the Abhidhamma that was written by a scholar, a long-ago scholar, named Anuruddha, about whom we don't know very much. And this is the English translation of Anuruddha's commentary on the first and seventh books. That's mostly what people have read of the Amidama, in English at least. The English translation, by the way, is by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who did a lot of these translations, although not all of them. Very prolific scholar, and did very much. I want to praise Bhikkhu Bodhi for bringing so much of these ancient texts into English for us to be able to appreciate and learn from. So that's the top-level view. As you can understand, we mostly focus on the suttas in what we study because those are the teachings that were offered by the Buddha. They have the instructions for meditation, the descriptions of the path, the... um, you know, the later texts include very uh, an analytical understanding of the teachings that include all those lists that you've heard of. Those are in the suttas. So that's mostly what we look at. And I want to go through the, uh, the collections of the suttas and just say what is understood to be the function of each one. And what I'm passing along is an analysis that was done by Bhikkhu Bodhi of what each of the five collections are about. So the first, typically the first book Within the Sutta collection is called the, the Diga Nikaya. It's, this one is the one that's listed first. And that means, Diga Nikaya means long discourses of the Buddha. 
probably it refers to the length of the suttas in here. And um, what this largely is said to do is bolster the Buddha's teachings relative to other religious and philosophical teachings that were popular at the time. So the Buddha wasn't teaching in a vacuum, right? He was he came into a highly intellectual, um, engaged, deeply spiritual Indian culture, and he was presenting teachings that were therefore in contrast to other ones that were there at the time. And the teachings in here largely uh, position his teachings relative to other teachings. So that's the long discourses. Let me pause and say a word about the word sutta, which is just the name of a discourse, S-U-T-T-A. But it's interesting in that it relates it, it relates to the word thread um, in Pali. And we see an echo of that in the word suture in our language. It's related. And I think it's a pretty evocative name for a discourse to call a teaching a thread. What is being woven or what is being um, stitched in a sense? So you can maybe consider for yourself what this image might refer to. So these are the long discourses. The next book is the Majima Nikaya. And these are the middle-length discourses. Also descriptive name. This is said to be, the function of this book is said to be that it's a manual for new monastics. So, whereas this book is more for people who may not necessarily be Buddhist, you know, it's positioning his teachings relative to the other ones, and it usually claims that they're a little better in various ways. This one is for people who are already convinced, they've uh, ordained as monastics, and this is a kind of a guidebook or a handbook that um, outlines the major areas of the Buddha Dhamma. What was the Buddha teaching? It includes faith, the path, ethical conduct, karma, effort, concentration, mindfulness, enlightenment, living the holy life. The the overview basic qualities, uh, basic factors that would go into studying and learning the teachings. Most of the teachings are offered as stories that have a rich context to them. They have characters, they have plot, they have the setup, and then the teaching, and then the conclusion. Some of them are dramatic. Um, They would have been very relatable to people at the time. They came right out of that culture. So this this book is very interesting, both as historical material and also as Buddhist teachings. And it's one that people often read fairly soon when when they begin studying the suttas. They might start with the Majjhima because it's, even for us, it's relatable. You know, the story, there are stories about people, <laughs> and so we can get that. And the teachings are also presented in a fairly clear way. The next, the third collection out of five, is this one, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha, or the Samyutta Nikaya. And these ones are interesting, um, these are organized by topic. That's why they're called connected. So it's like all the discourses that are connected to a particular teaching, a particular area of the teachings. And they tend to be somewhat technical and analytical. So the areas of teachings that are offered are things like conditionality, um, the components of experience, like the six sense bases and the five aggregates, the seven factors of awakening, the path. You know, very um, much more systematized teachings. This is, has a lot of things related to the lists, and this is said to be a guidebook for more experienced practitioners who are aiming for liberation. So they want to read the more advanced teachings. 
They don't tend to have a lot of context. They tend to just present the heart of the teaching, um, often in fairly dry form. Although there are there are a few stories in here. Um, there, you know, it's quite a different style than the Majima. And then the fourth of the Sutta collections is this one, the Anguttara Nikaya. This is translated as the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Um, it's also, the, the word Anguttara more literally means further factored or incrementing by one. And um, this is a pretty interesting one because it has in it 11 books. They're called the Book of the Ones, the Book of the Twos, the Book of the Threes, up to the Book of the Elevens. And each of the teachings has um, something that's related to that number. So, you know, it'll say, these are the four different ways that people get enlightened. And it'll list them. Or, you know, these are the four, or the six of this, or the seven of that. Why are they, why do we have something that's just organized by numbers in the list? Bhikkhu Bodhi speculates that it might be for Dharma teachers who need to give talks. <laughs> um, I don't know. Also, the, um, this collection has a number of the less common teachings and also um, more teachings, a greater proportion of teachings for lay people. So that's just four of them. And then the fifth, um, you can see on your chart here, the fifth one is called the Kudika Nikaya. And Kudika means minor, so the minor discourses, but that does not refer to their importance. Uh, they're not lesser. And there's, um, it says here that there are 15 of them, and they're numbered 1 through 15, so you can see the names of them. I also um, heard from another teacher that they're sometimes said that there are 16 of them, so it might depend a little bit how you count them. Um, but this one lists 15. And this is a whole bunch of smaller texts, some of which you may have actually heard of. This includes, for example, uh, the Dhammapada, a very popular teaching that people often start with. It also includes the Sutta Nipata, considered one, some parts of the Sutta Nipata are considered some of the very earliest teachings that were given by the Buddha. And then there are other collections, such as the Udana, uh, the Itibhutaka, also the, um, the poems of the senior monks and nuns who were enlightened, so the Teragata and the Terigata are also part of the Kudika Nikaya, and there's a lot of these little texts. So those are the five major collections that are part of the Sutta basket. And then in addition to that, there are various commentaries that have been written on these. Right. So there's the original texts that are just as they are, and then later scholars and practitioners and senior monks uh, wrote commentaries over time that explain the situation, they explain who the people are, they explain some backstory, um, things like that, or some kind of analysis. Some of these ancient comments are included in the endnotes in Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, translations. So these are all English translations. But if you, you know, there will be a footnote or an endnote, and then you look in the back, and what it is is it's not Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment, it's that he's put in what the commentary said about that particular passage. So it's nice, we have access to some of the ancient comments through those endnotes. And this is interesting because a lot of the commentaries have not been translated into English. You can't just buy a book like this that's the commentary on the Anguttara Nikaya. Well, you could, but it would be in Pali. <laughs> so um, 
So we, we still have some translation to do. There's also another book that's um, a later commentary that's called the Visuddhimagga. I just want to mention it. That word means path of purification, the Visuddhimagga. That is um, a commentary that's still considered very important in modern Burmese Buddhism. And it was done, when was it done? It was done, I believe, in the 8th century, 5th century, 5th century in Sri Lanka by the monk Buddha Gosa. And it's um, not considered part of the Pali Canon uh, by some scholars, but it's, all, it's very much a part of Burmese Buddhism. And it's not a commentary on a particular text, but more a summary and distillation of many teachings that were used at the time. The teachings had been kind of blossoming, and he gathered them all and distilled them into this one commentary. So I have a certain fondness, you know, you can see because of these, you know, this text that I have, I have a certain fondness for the physical books. I really appreciate um, holding the text and feeling it and reading this text and then being able, my, letting my eyes wander to the next one and, you know, seeing how they connect together, having access to all the footnotes and endnotes that were associated with the translation of this text. And, I don't know, for me, this is, it's important for me to actually have the books. You can find some of these texts online. Um, there's a particularly a website called Access to Insight, accesstoinsight.org, where there's quite a number of them, not, certainly not all of them, but quite a number of them there. You can just look it up and have access to them. But there you get a web page that has, you know, that text on it. You can't flip to the next page um, and see what else is around it in the text. It doesn't have the same feeling reading on a screen than reading in a book. So this is my ode to getting the physical books. Now, you know, they're not, you can find them used um, on Amazon or other places or through Wisdom. Most of them are published through Wisdom. Um, you know, they may not be so inexpensive, but considering that they contain the ancient teachings leading to awakening, uh, I think they're pretty priceless. <laughs> so let me give a, a very brief historical context. How did these come to be written down? It's likely that the Buddha died around 400 BCE, so 400 years before the Common Era, having lived for 80 years. There isn't full agreement among scholars and Buddhist teachers about when the Buddha lived. I'll just be clear that I'm putting something out that's more of a range, and we won't go into all of that here, but we can, I think we can say it was around 400 BCE that he died. These early texts say that the man who became the Buddha was from the Sakya clan, so there were various family groups, groups of families called clans, and he was from the Sakya clan, and he had family name uh, Gotama. He attained enlightenment at the age of 35 after practicing for seven years, and at that point he became the Buddha, which, is, which means awake. The word Buddha means awake. Later texts uh, say... Not these ones, but later these words. These ones uh, don't use the word Siddhartha for his name. That was added later. 
didn't actually give his first name, but they say his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And after he became enlightened at 35, he taught for 45 years and then died at the age of 80. So that's a pretty long time that he was teaching. And so you can imagine that he gave a lot of discourses and he had time to lay down a lot of rules. He had time to systematize his teaching into various lists. So it is plausible that what's offered here pretty much relates to what he taught during 45 years. But uh, truthfully, we have no historical records of him or his teachings from the time that he lived. There's no archaeology of the Buddha from that time. We do have direct evidence from the time of King Ashoka, who lived in 250 BCE, so a bit after the Buddha died. Uh, there, um, there is uh, archaeological evidence of uh, referencing a pilgrimage to the Buddha's birthplace, which was in Lumbini, and also it contains some um, Buddhist teachings from the time of King Ashoka. So how did the teachings get preserved over time? There were councils of enlightened people, so people who had practiced with the Buddha and become arahants, become fully awakened people, and they held councils after the Buddha's death. There were a number of them to recite, transmit, and examine the teachings. The first council was actually held quite soon after the Buddha died to make sure that all of his teachings were remembered among everyone. Then it was transmitted orally for at least several centuries before the Tipitaka was first written down in Sri Lanka. The date of writing is not precisely known, so that's another area that we're not going to go into because scholars talk about that. When was this all actually recorded? Um, but something was you know, called the Pali Scriptures in Pali was written that were said to be the teachings of the Buddha, written down at that time, and have been transmitted in various ways through time to here. So first of all, let's just take that in, that this was done first orally, just speaking them to each other, working hard to memorize them and keep them alive, and then eventually written down uh, that they didn't have paper and ink and printing presses then. They had banana leaves, and those were preserved and passed from teacher to student in monasteries for a long time. Banana leaves are not very durable media, so subject to uh, insects and fire and other things. So it was not that easy, I think, to preserve them for 2,500 years. But I feel a certain amount of reverence that they were, a certain amount of a lot of gratitude. Over time, the Pali Canon became closed. So it started out, um, some elements of the Vinaya were closed at the First Council. They said, this is it, these are the rules for monastics, they're not going to change. But the suttas were added to and changed, presumably, uh, for some time after that. And then at some point, another date that's not agreed on exactly, um, the canon was closed probably by the first century of the Common Era. It was closed, but it could have been earlier than that. And the commentaries came after that. Okay. So, and then they were transmitted over time. Now, Buddhism, I've now used the word ism, it's now an ism, 
Buddhism now includes many sects, actually. It wasn't, this is not just one thing, of course, that was transmitted over 2,500 years. You know, religions change over time. There are different schools, there are factions, there are arguments. It moves to new countries, whole new areas of the world, like who knew it was going to come to the West. I don't know what the West was doing in 250 BCE, but it wasn't what they were doing in ancient India then. And eventually they intersected here. So it now includes many sects. The one that's most related to these early teachings is called Theravada Buddhism. And that is practiced mostly in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka. And it takes the Pali Canon as a scripture. So this is considered, you know, these are the sacred texts of the Theravada school. Already, though, by the time of the Second Council, remember I mentioned the first just after the Buddha's death, the Second Council was about 100 years after his death. Already by then, there were multiple schools, each claiming to have, you know, uh, the real teachings, I guess, and or criticizing others' teachings, feeling that they were different from the other versions. So there was already differentiation by that time, and there was even further differentiation later into maybe as many as a couple dozen schools. Over time, several schools um, and their texts uh, disappeared. So this is the one that got through, <laughs> um, the one that we now call the Pali Canon in Theravada school, but there were other versions earlier that we don't necessarily have access to. There was also um, much further development of the teachings into the sects that are now known as Mahayana and Vajrayana. So Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana... Uh, that are practiced in different parts of the world. That have They don't even take the Pali Canon anymore as their scripture. They have their own texts. And I'm not going to have time to go into those other schools at this time. Another interesting little side note is that some of the early Theravada texts, or early, maybe even before Theravada, early Buddhist teachings, those books were carried to other countries, like China, for example, um, and were written down there in Chinese. And so we have a, ser- a bunch of texts called the Agamas that are similar to the Nikayas, but they uh, developed on a whole different uh, path, essentially. And it's now very interesting to compare what's written in these to what's written to the sort of equivalent teaching that's equivalent sutta that is in the Agamas. And we can see um, if there were differences in the way that teaching was transmitted so this is a lot of work has been done by uh, Bhikkhu Analio in this area. For example, the Satipatthana Sutta. How many people have heard of the Satipatthana Sutta? Yeah, so at least half of you. That is the main text that um, carries the detailed instructions for mindfulness that we generally try to follow here in the West. One text <laughs> out of many thousands. But um, it's an important one. And that one is um, also in the Agamas, but it's a little different. Satipatthana Sutta that appears there. Um, and so it's interesting to see what, uh, what is included, what is not included, what is included there that's not included here, um, how might it have changed over time. So there are a lot of different ways to read these texts. We can read them as sacred religious texts. 
They can also be read as, uh, as historical texts that tell us something about the time when they were written. Even if we don't know exactly when that was, it's something about that culture at the time. They can also be read as literature. Um, you know, these are stories, and they were meant to convey something. And the way literature is composed uh, tells us a little bit about the culture and tells us how people were thinking and relating and how they, what they thought was important to convey in a story. Some of the uh, texts in here, at least one that I know of, is um, very similar in style to a type of drama that was performed at the time, you know, like plays. And there was a particular style of play that was popular in ancient India. And uh, at least one of the texts in here has that same style. You almost wonder, was it performed? (laughs) You know, very interesting. And it would have been meaningful to people at the time. They would have recognized the style immediately, even though for us, you know, it's more an academic issue. So usually, um, the way we would read the text here in the classes that are offered at, at ISC is that we would read these as um, with an eye toward practice, essentially. So we read them as instructions. How can these texts help further our meditation practice, help us understand how to practice in order to advance along the path? What are they telling us about what to do when we're sitting or when we're living? Um, that, kind of, that kind of lens putting on them, essentially. Sometimes, in doing so, it's important to look at something about Indian society at the time or look a little bit more at the Pali. Uh, you know, what is this word, a translation of, and what's trying to be conveyed there. But um, it's not the primary aim. Mostly when I'm teaching, I teach uh, with an eye toward practice. That's not to say that that's a better way to read them. It's just the most practical, I think, for us as meditators. But nonetheless, it's good to know that because how we approach a text influences what we see in it, what we can glean from it, and it also influences how it may affect us. And we do want these texts to affect us, to have some impact, to change the way we think or practice, to move us uh, emotionally. There are many things that can come from a text. So it's good to be aware of how it is that we're approaching a text. It's also useful to remember that if we read commentary or we listen to somebody else talking about a sutta, it might be worth considering what lens they might be using in order that we can better understand what they're saying. Now, what happens when you start reading texts? And we're going to do that shortly. What we find is that some of them are very resonant. And, you know, that's maybe what we start to realize, yes, these teachings uh, somehow speak to me in some way. That's why I've chosen to do this practice. And so we start to feel uh, that certain texts really speak to us and and, uh, have meaning. But other texts we may find to be confusing. Yet other ones may be disagreeable or disturbing. You know, they say something and we say, what? I don't think so. So this is interesting. They're all valuable. They're all valuable. And our response to them actually tells us something important. It's something that should be paid attention to. Sometimes when people disagree with the text, they have a kind of a black or white response. They say either, well, throw it out. You know, this one's wrong. I don't agree with this one. 
um, it's worthless, or the whole thing's worthless. I always knew this wasn't the, the path for me. Or they um, say, well, I must be really stupid. You know, I don't get this. Um, I'm not reading this correctly. But I don't think either of those extremes is so useful. We might find that a challenging text, if we work with it, points us to a place where our understanding was a little fuzzy or where uh, we didn't understand something deeply enough. You know, we saw, we thought, well, this text contradicts this other one. And, you know, what is that? Is that just because, you know, they just put everything under the sun into this collection of texts and they're all inconsistent? I always knew religion was blah, blah, blah. You know, you can go off on that. Or you can say, huh, these texts seem to say something very different. I wonder if it's that I don't fully understand that teaching yet. And I've had a number of times where I felt that there was a contradiction between the way things were presented and then after a while, my understanding changed or something shifted, and I thought, oh, you know, these actually aren't inconsistent if you look at a bigger picture. There's a way of seeing this, that they're just different facets of the same thing, even though they're going to sound different. So that, I think, is really valuable. That's some of the fruit that comes from studying the text closely and working with them and allowing them to work on us over time. Confusing texts might become clearer over time. But other texts that we thought were simple might become, hmm, suddenly we realize they're deeper than we thought. (laughs) There's more there than I thought. More layers, more complexity. So it's really interesting to let the text work on us and become part of our path. I know this is a lot of talking, but I'll just say one more thing before we look at a text. So it's also worth noting that um, we're reading the texts in English. Let's not forget they were not written in English originally, right? So we have the additional layer of the English translation in addition to any, who knows, transmission changes that came over time through the poly being as simple as a copy error, you know, Mm -hmm. writing it down, um, to somebody deciding to change a word because they think this teaching shouldn't be presented this way. Also, the words of meaning, the the meanings of words change over time. So sometimes a word in Pali that was maybe written in the very first writing down in in Pali, the Pali of a few centuries later, that word has a slightly different meaning. And so then the texts are interpreted in a different way. So we don't know exactly. um, But as you read more you may find it worthwhile to do two things. One is to begin learning some of the common Pali words. So it's nice to know that mindfulness is the usual translation of the word sati. So we say mindfulness, and we think we know that's mindfulness. But it's not, it wasn't mindfulness. The word was sati, and, and it was translated as mindfulness. Why was that done? What does sati really refer to? So we might start going back to what the actual original word was and learning about that. And then we learn that there's a range of English translations, often, for particular words. Um, And so then we might consider, well, let's line up the five different words, English words, that are sometimes used for this poly term. And we realize, wow, they convey kind of a range. Okay, so which one resonates more for me? What do I think was, you know, what might have been meant in terms of meditation instruction? It, we might, the second thing we might want to do is start reading different English translations and see which ones 
how they land for us in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does anyone have any questions at this point? Yeah. Who organized them into those categories? Oh, so like the five different books? Okay, so that was done by what are called the redactors of the canon. And those, so those, the organization is something that was um, part of the writing of the canon itself. So this structure is preserved. This wasn't something that Bhikkhu Bodhi decided, for example. But I'll add that um, in the, we don't know that this was necessarily the first way it was written down, but this is the way it was inherited through the Theravada school. Also, I'll say that in the Agamas, those ones that I referred to that are the texts that got passed into China and then translated into Chinese, but they were the ancient texts, and now we have access to them, they are not, like the suttas in them are a little bit shuffled. (laughs) They still have similar books of similar names, like the Madhyama Agama means middle length Agama, like Majima Nikaya, Madhyama Agama, they're similar, but it's not exactly the same set of texts. You know, it's, it's most of them, but then there are some extra ones, and there are some ones that were put in other collections. So different redactors organize the text slightly differently, but this is approximately preserved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Great. So let's um, let's read. If you could get out the handout that says at the top, overview of the Pali Canon Sutta examples. And the first one says at the top, SN 45.1, the Avija Sutta. Okay? So... The nice thing about these texts is that they are best... um, Remember that they were oral texts. They were originally translated orally and passed along or, sorry, transmitted orally. So when I teach suttas, I like for people to read them. So I wonder if somebody would volunteer to read the first two paragraphs. And don't worry um, about the pronunciation. doesn't matter, just... um, do your best, as there's a couple poly words in there. Would anyone like to read the first two paragraphs? Yeah, Michael. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savita in Jeddah's Grove, and at the Pindikas Park. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. Okay, so we'll stop there for a moment. Thank you. So, um, who knows what the word bhikkhu means? Yeah. Monk? Yeah, that's right. It means monk. So, um, that's uh, the Indian word for one who has uh, taken the 227 precepts that are described in the Vinaya. It would be a bhikkhu, and we, you know, we still use that word for ordained Theravadan monastics. Yeah, Richard. But on certain retreats, you're also the yogis or bhikkhus. Yes. Another example of translation. That's correct. So um, you're pointing out um, actually what I was going to say next, which is that we generally take a broader 
um, this, it sounds a little separating because nobody in this room is an ordained male monastic, <laughs> at least as far as I know. <laughs> so um, generally, though, what he was saying with bhikkhus is he was saying practitioners or yogis, you know, those of you who are studying these teachings. So I say that explicitly so that when we read this, we don't keep thinking, oh, he's only talking to the monks, he's not talking to me. He's talking to us. He's talking to those of us who are practicing. So don't feel like that is a separating word, if you will. And then um, I also want to comment a little bit on the language. Thus have I heard. So that's the um, opening line of many suttas. Not all of them, but it's. I think it's really nice. It points out that um, it's saying, this is something that I have heard. And then it gives a teaching from the Buddha. So it's, we can ask, who is the narrator? You know, that each one of these has a narrator, somebody who said, this is what I heard. And mostly the narrator is said to be Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and also his um, attendee, attendant for many of the later years of his life. But not, not, all, not only, there were others at the beginning. And so, and Ananda was said to have an excellent memory and actually memorized all the teachings that he heard. So that's interesting. I think it's kind of humble. It doesn't say, you know, the Buddha declared or I as the Buddha am telling you. It's thus have I heard. You know, this is something that I heard. I'm going to tell it to you, see if it's useful. And this word blessed one is... Um, is a word that's, you know, that's used for the Buddha. And then these locations, Savati, Injeta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park, we won't go into the details, that's just telling you where it was. Those are referenced in many other suttas. This was a common place where the Buddha was staying and teaching. One last thing before we go on and hear the teaching is that the notation at the top where it says SN45.1 the capital S, capital N, refers to Samyutta Nikaya. So this third one, the big text, which was the one that's the uh, guidebook for more advanced practitioners seeking liberation, that's the connected discourses, and it's the 45th chapter, the first sutta in that chapter, in that little collection. And so that's um, telling you how notation is done. The Avijja Sutta is a name given to that sutta. Um, that wasn't necessarily the original name. They don't all have titles. Some of those were added later. Avijja means ignorance, by the way, not knowing. And you'll see that that figures when we get to the teaching. Okay, who would like to read the first that first paragraph of the teaching, the next block of text? Yeah. Because ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. For an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. For one of wrong view, wrong intention springs up. For one of wrong intention, wrong speech springs up. For one of wrong speech, wrong action springs up. For one of wrong action, wrong livelihood springs up. For one of wrong livelihood, wrong effort springs up. For one of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness springs up. For one of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration springs up. Great. Thank you. It's pretty um, systematic, yeah? 
And remember that these were oral texts, so you can understand that a text that's written like that would be fairly easy to remember. Right? It's rhythmic. It goes on. Does anyone recognize this teaching? Yeah, this is the Eightfold Path. Um, it begins with um, ignorance as the um, forerunner of pursuing an incorrect path. And then it um, says, for an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. So let me say, first of all, that wrong and right, we're going to get to right in the next one, um, are not meant in the sense that we might usually think of them as you know, good and bad, basically, or bad and good. It refers more to unwise or unskillful compared to wise or skillful. So uh, wrong view is a view or a way of seeing things or an orientation that leads away from wisdom, leads away, from, leads towards suffering, is not helpful in our life. So it's, um, it's simply not wise or unskillful to do that, to think in that way. The other thing to notice about this is how linear it is, you know? Wrong view leads to wrong intention. Wrong intention leads to wrong speech and all the way through to wrong concentration. It's interesting. So let's now um, just finish this off by reading the next paragraph. Would somebody like to read that one? Thank you. Because true knowledge is the forerunner in the entry upon wholesome states with a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing following along. For a wise person who has arrived at true knowledge, right view springs up. For one of right view, right intention springs up. For one of right intention, right speech springs up. For one of right speech, right action springs up. For one of right action, right livelihood springs up. For one of right livelihood, right effort springs up. For one of right effort, right mindfulness springs up. For one of right mindfulness, right concentration springs up. Right. Great. Right. <laughs> Thank you. So it's just the inverse. You know, so we, first we get the negative of what to avoid, and then we get the positive of what to do, in a sense. Or It's not only prescriptive, I'll say. It's also descriptive. But essentially what we see here is that the Buddha... I'm giving I'll give the framework of why I maybe why I chose this sutta, and also we're going to compare it to another one that's very different. Is that the Buddha taught a path of practice, and we see that here. He wants to give us some way to get from wherever we are spiritually to a place of greater wisdom, uh, closer to awakening, greater liberation in sense. The most commonly known formulation of the path that the Buddha taught is the Eightfold Path, which we, which was mentioned earlier. Somebody recognized this teaching, and the eight steps of it are listed here. View, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And there's many, many teachings about the Eightfold Path, and it's been well-developed also in our uh, Western understanding of uh, how this pervades our whole life, in fact, here at ISC right now, we're running a program called the Eightfold Path Program, where each month we look at one of the steps of this sequence. 
So some teachings on the path are very systematized. It doesn't get much more systematized than this. I don't know. I mean, do you find this emotionally evocative and um, highly inspiring? It might be inspiring in kind of a cognitive sense of, wow, you know, if I proceed this way, it's all going to unfold. But um, it's not terribly poetic, and it's highly linear also. It says, this follows this, this follows this, this follows this. So the Sutta, the Samyutta Nikaya that this comes from is considered to be one of the more, as I said, is one of the more systematized collections. The teachings tend to be similar to this. And um, in addition, this is likely a later collection. That's what I wanted to point out is that it's, this is from a time when the teachings were more systematized, more formulaic. So let me just ask you, when you read a text like this, kind of how do you relate to it? You know, does this... You know, what, what impressions do you have from it? Yeah. Um... I'm curious about the language and the original meaning. Some of these words sound a lot like some of the other words. Um, Mindfulness, concentration. Um, Yeah, I just, I I guess I'd have to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, so this this text is a little bit like jumping into um, the deep end of Buddhist style in the in the Pali Canon, and I, I deliberately chose it first. This, there's a particular way that suttas sound, and the first time you read them, as you start to read them, you start thinking, you know, you might start thinking, "Wow, this is kind of odd language." Like I don't think I would formulate the sentence this way. I don't think I would necessarily do this. I wouldn't have so much repu- repetition. Um, it's funny that uh, the text. Um, often have these things where there are repeated elements. This one, it's a fairly short repetition. It says, for one of X, Y springs up. And then it goes on, for one of Y, Z springs up. And it's just repeated eight times. It's not too um, overbearing, so they just wrote it all out. But there are cases where there's a long section that's repeated for each of a bunch of qualities. And, you know, there are actually in these texts little... um, Ellipses, you know, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) It's the same thing, but repeated for this quality and for this quality and for this quality. And you might think at first, well, okay, you know, the English would be really, it would get really, really long if you wrote the whole thing out. But actually, even in the poly, (laughs) there are ellipses (laughs) that say dot, dot, dot. So they didn't write, maybe they didn't want to waste so many banana leaves um, (laughs) writing the whole thing out, I'm not sure. Um, Environmentally conscious, I don't know. Um... But this is probably a, an artifact of it being an oral uh, tradition of needing to memorize it. Probably. That's one... People often sort of toss that off as, well, it was an oral tradition, that's why it was so repetitive. I've come to see that also, you know, in addition to that, it might be that certain things are repeated because they're important. And I've found that when I actually have the patience and take the time to read that whole repetitive text and let it go over in my mind, 
it starts to sink in a little bit better than if I just read it like, you know, a newspaper article, oh, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I get the teaching. I hear what he said. It's not the same as when it's repeated and it goes in uh, in a different way, has more of a almost poetic quality. You know, this may not be how you think of poetry, but there's a way in which it's entering through that repetition. You're right that, um, and other people may have noticed this, that there's some symmetry. I mean, certainly the two paragraphs that have the teaching are the same thing, essentially, for wrong, etc., and then right, etc. But like the first um, sentence, for example, says, Ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states, with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. And then the inverse of that is true knowledge. So you can see, oh, it's juxtaposing ignorance with true knowledge. So the structure of the sutta helps us understand that part of the teaching is that the um, counteraction to ignorance is going to be something called true knowledge. It's actually avijja and vijja uh, in Pali. And then it says into the entry upon wholesome states with a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing following along. So uh, he didn't have to say specifically um, that he thinks true knowledge is associated with a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing. It just kind of comes out of the way it's written. And then we can think to ourselves, oh, so in what way is shame and fear of wrongdoing a positive thing? That might be a section where you read it and say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think shame and fear are good things. And so, you know, what is that? Um, So that may help you. That might be a case where we would look at other texts and say, what is this quality, shame and fear of wrongdoing? Those are hiri and otapa in the Pali. And there's a lot of other teachings around that, um, around those particular qualities. There are whole suttas devoted to those. And so you can come to understand, oh, okay, I see what he means by that. He doesn't mean the kind of shame where I'm like beating myself over the head or fear like I'm not willing to make any, uh, do any kind of action. Um, It's actually these are guardians of the world. If we didn't have them, um, you know, we wouldn't have any sense of conscience, essentially. I've also seen these um, same words, the shame and fear of wrongdoing, translated as, and this is a case where translation is going to have a totally different impact. Respect for self and respect for others. Does that sound different than shame and fear of wrongdoing? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it depends on how the translation comes through. Thank you for that question because we got to see that. Yeah. There's a lot even in a very fairly simple formulaic teaching like this. One thing about this is that it's it doesn't exactly tell you what to do in this case. A lot of the teachings in the um, I mean I won't say a lot, but that's too general. But some of the teachings in the Samyutta Nikaya assume that the practitioner knows how to practice because they were for monks who had been studying for a while. And so it was more about giving like a really clear um, transmission of how the teachings link together. Uh, I once I took a three-year course where we read the entire Samyutta Nikaya over three years. 
let me say that was a task. <laughs> um, but fascinating, fascinating, because what I came away with, and I didn't know this was going to happen, it only came because I read every single sutta in that, is that I began to see patterns that I wouldn't have seen um, if I had just picked a sutta out here and there, um, in that each vaga, as they're called, chapter on a certain quality, like this one, um, is the chapter on the path, basically, the maga, samyutta, the chapter on the path. If you read the whole thing, you get a sense of what other teachings are connected to the teaching of the path. Even though it's the connected discourses, it sounds like it's that it's everything that's you know about the path is connect is collected together into one place. It's actually that what you're learning is which other teachings are connected to teachings on the path, kind of like hyperlinks on a document, <laughs> right? And you could click on one of them, and it'll take you to a whole other section. And so it turns out that the set of things that's clustered around and connected to the path is not quite the same as the set of things that's clustered around and connected to, say, feeling tone in the Vedana Samhita, which is another section of this. Um, so what comes away from the Samhita Nikaya is a vast sense of, of the uh, systematization and how all the different parts relate to each other it's not hard and fast. I mean, it's not like it's describing... It's not, this is not like physics describing, you know, um, something externally existent. It's how the teachings were structured in order to match how our mind might enter into them and find some, some way to free itself. Okay? That got a little abstract, but are there... Um, See, I, f- I feel very passionate about these texts, <laughs> and I feel like um, there's just more and more that comes the more we read them, and I think everyone's going to have a different path through them. I'm not saying that this is the way to do it, or that you would have this insight if you read the whole Samyutta Nikaya. I would love for all of you to do that, and then tell me what insights you have, <laughs> because they would be different, and we would learn from each other. We're actually continuing a very ancient tradition of studying the text together. The only reason these texts came to us is that people did something like this. I don't know if it was exactly like this, but they learned from each other, sharing their own experiences with reading them and with practicing um, over time for 2,500 years. And what we're doing here is not any lesser than anything that has been done before. Anytime these texts are engaged with and studied and talked about and read aloud to each other and asked questions about, we're doing it. We're transmitting them. So congratulations on that participation. (laughs) You didn't know necessarily. Is there more on this one? Yeah. It's it's not specifically to this one. It's It's a little bit of a broader question. I don't know if you want that later or... Well, why don't you ask it? Okay. Well, I'm I'm just touched from everything you've shared, just the vastness of it all. And it feels like just one sutta, like you said, you could just keep going and going. And, um, you know, is there a suggested order to studying the suttas or ways or mm. like how how have people studied them you know more more in our modern day yeah 
This is a great question. I don't think there's a single, you know, a single best way to do it. Yeah. Um, many people begin with texts that are fairly that are considered more readable. Typically, the Dhammapada is a starter, as well as um, the Majjhima Nikaya, the one that has a lot of stories and was meant as a manual for new monks. And we're new monks, right? All of us are new monks, just learning about these teachings. And so it has a nice overview. Um, but I will offer, uh, you could also start with topics. You know, you could say, well, what inspires me is loving kindness. So I'm going to start with the Metta Sutta, which happens to be in the Sutta Nipata, in the Kudika Nikaya. And I'm going to start there, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to find words in it that are related, I'm going to look up texts related to that. So you can do it that way also. There's a lovely um, essay that's on the second page of the... It's a nice transition, isn't it? We'll go on to the <laughs> second page of the um, readings that we have. At the very bottom, it says, Further Reading. There's an essay called Befriending the Suttas, um, and that's it's on access to insight. Um, I, just, I recommend it to people. It's written uh, by somebody else who has uh, studied the suttas for himself, and it's kind of a nice um, overview of how to approach the texts, you know, he's presenting his own ideas. Some of them may differ from what I said today, but see for yourself. Mm-hmm. And he gives some examples um, of ways in which we may be challenged and then how to get through that and some other ways of relating to the text. I don't remember if he specifically says, has examples of where we might start, but he might, because Mike, okay. he might. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those sort of start anywhere kind okay. of things. <laughs> Yeah, Richard. <coughs> the Satipatthana, yes, the Satipatthana. The Satipatthana Sutta is in um, the Majjhima Nikaya, and there's another version of it actually in the Diga Nikaya. Mm-hmm. So that's a good one to start with. Yeah. So if in, thanks for reminding me. In the partic- if you're looking for a particular text to start with, you might start with MN10, Majjhima Nikaya 10. That's the Satipatthana. That's a big one. We didn't, we're not going to try to read that one or today. Or 118. Or 118. That's the Anapanasati Sutta, a text on mindfulness of breathing. Also very fundamental uh, mindfulness instructions. Okay, but we're, um, just to remind where we are, we are talking about suttas that deal with the path. And we read this first one that was pretty much a formula. <laughs> about the Eightfold Path. Oh, I was saying before that it, picking up um, what I was saying, is that it doesn't necessarily offer us instructions on what to do. You know, it doesn't say, here's how you get right view. Here's how you practice with wise speech. It doesn't really offer that to us. Instead, it gives us this interesting formulation for one with this, that will spring up. So the invitation is a little more subtle. It's maybe to see... Is it true that if I have one of the wise intentions, or you'll have to look up what that is. This is one of those hyperlinks. So the three wise intentions are the intention of renunciation, the intention of compassion, and the intention of loving kindness, or non-harming and non-cruelty, I should say. Renunciation, non-harming, and non-cruelty. And 
if I have those, is it true that wise speech emerges from that? And when I'm, you know, when I'm really in a place of non-ill will, non-harming, really caring about the person, is it true that it's very natural for me to say something connecting and kind? And whereas if I'm in a place of, you know, irritation and ill will about somebody, it's very easy to say something a little bit cutting or a little bit nasty. Check for yourself. Is this true? So that's often the invitation in these teachings. Okay, so are we ready to go on to the second one? Okay. So this teaching, it's on your second page. I want to start actually with the um, uh, designation at the top. It also says SN, doesn't it? But it's capital S, little n, <laughs> instead of capital S, capital N. So that's the Sutta Nipata instead of the Samyutta Nikaya. <laughs> Good to know these things. Um, and this one is called the Mangala Sutta. Mangala means blessing. And uh, we're using the translation that is um, used by Amaravati, which is a monastery in England in the Thai forest tradition, so it's a Theravadan monastery. There are a number of translations of the Mangala Sutta because it's a very popular one. So I chose this one. Would somebody like to read um, the introduction, so those first three paragraphs on this page? Sure. Yeah, Beverly, thanks. I have heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying at Savati at Jetta's Grove and at Pandika's Park. Then a certain Devata in the far extreme of the night, her extreme radiance lighting up the entirety of Jetta's Grove, approached the Blessed One. On approaching, having bowed down to the Blessed One, she stood to one side. As she was standing there, she addressed a verse to the Blessed One. Many devas and human beings give thought to good fortune, desiring well-being. Tell them, what is the highest blessing? Okay, thank you. So that's the setup, basically. That is giving the context of this teaching. And there's a few words we might need to go over. So notice that, the, um, by the way, the location is identical, as in the Avijja Sutta. It's in uh, Savati, Jetas Grove, and Pindikas Park. So he spent a lot of time there. Um, and then this word devata, um, I think that's a young deva. A deva being a, um, essentially a god or a celestial being of some kind. Um, they're not uh, omniscient or omnipotent or uh, eternal. Gods in this are also beings that are on the path. And so this, this being appears. They're, they're said to be very radiant and beautiful and have you know, lovely voices and be very pretty. And so um, she comes and her extreme radiance lights up the entirety of the grove. In the middle of the night she appears and she has a question. This is very common. We didn't see this in the prior, more analytical, just offered teaching it's very common that in the suttas, somebody will come and ask the Buddha a question. And this is a common way of learning. It's well accepted that you would come and have questions about the teaching. You might say, here's what's happening in my practice. What is this? Or you might say a question more like this. Please tell me what is the highest blessing. 
And then it gives, it sets up the Buddha to um, offer a teaching about that. And interestingly, he, uh, the reason we're given some of this background of who this is, is so that we understand how the Buddha answers the question. Because he answers different people's questions differently. There are sometimes questions that are offered by a layperson will come up to the Buddha, somebody who is a, you know, um, a, well, it could be a king, but it could also be a laborer, um, a consort, you know, somebody. He talked to everybody. And he'll give a different answer to a person, depending whether they're a king or a farmer or something like that, uh, compared to somebody who's a monk, for example, or who's a deva. So, you know, that kind of matters. So sometimes it's helpful to notice who the audience is when he's giving his teachings. And then this part about approaching, uh, bowing down to the Buddha, standing to one side, that's somewhat formulaic. It's, um, uh, you'll see that in a, a lot of teachings. It's just, it's just the respectful way that somebody comes up to the Buddha, they um, somehow greet him, uh, make themselves known, and then they stand to one side out of respect and ask their question. It, it was a custom in Indian society at the time, apparently. So she has a question. She says, Many devas and human beings give thought to good fortune, desiring well-being. Tell then what is the highest blessing. So she asks um, a question that many of us can identify with. You know, how how do I have a good life? You know, this is the world's not that easy. How can I how can I do well in the world and have well-being? So it's a nice question, and it's an appropriate question for a spiritual teacher. So he gives her an excellent answer. All right, who would like to keep reading? Um, if someone's really up for it, you can read the whole thing, all the verses, or you could read half of it if you want. Yeah, great. Not consorting with fools, consorting with the wise, paying homage to those who deserve homage, this is the highest blessing. Living in a civilized country, having made merit in the past, directing oneself rightly, this is the highest blessing. Broad knowledge, skill, discipline well mastered, words well spoken, this is the highest blessing. Support for one's parents, assistance to one's wife and children, jobs that are not left unfinished, this is the highest blessing. Generosity, living by the Dhamma, assistance to one's relatives, deeds that are blameless, this is the highest blessing. Avoiding, abstaining from evil, refraining from intoxicants, being uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind, this is the highest blessing. Respect, humility, contentment, gratitude, Hearing the Dhamma on timely occasions, this is the highest blessing. Patience, composure, seeing contemplatives, discussing the Dhamma on timely occasions, this is the highest blessing. Austerity, celibacy, seeing the noble truths, realizing liberation, this is the highest blessing. A mind that, when touched by the ways of the world, 
is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. This is the highest blessing. Everywhere undefeated in doing these things, people go everywhere in well-being. This is their highest blessing. Great. Thank you very much. So that was all of the verses. So, first impressions? Comments? There's no single answer. There's no single answer. Okay, yeah, it's kind of interesting. This is the highest blessing for every single one of them. It's true. covers, you know, much, maybe all of the Eightfold Path, but it, I just heard it differently. Uh, it, just hearing it just felt like a blessing to just hear, like it, it felt different, the, the yeah. hearing of it to me. Isn't it different, actually? It's nice to hear these teachings spoken. Yeah. It's, it's like hearing poetry, is that it's mm. different when you read it in a book compared to when you hear it spoken to you. It really emphasizes that these were oral teachings and that there's there's a channel that comes in a little differently when you hear it. Thank you for that. I also want to pick up your first comment where you said it includes much or all of the Eightfold Path, which is, you know, of course, why it's juxtaposed with the other teaching on the Eightfold Path. That's that's perceptive and it's I think the correct I think it's a, a correct way to read this a useful way to read this. So let's go through and and maybe identify some of the qualities of the path. You can look at the other sheet if you want to see what the eight steps are. Remember that they're view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Here, we start with, and they're not exactly linear, and they're not exactly spelled out necessarily, but... Notice, we'll just talk through some of them. So not consorting with fools, consorting with the wise, paying homage to those who deserve homage. This is the highest blessing. So there's some sense of discernment there. There's some sense of knowing who's a fool and who's wise and making the choice. This is an element of view. View is part of wisdom. It's being able to choose what's skillful and what's unskillful is part of, is one aspect of wise view. And then we have living in a civilized country, having made merit in the past, directing oneself rightly, directing oneself, intention. So there's a sense of um, aiming, wanting to develop oneself in a certain way. And so then, and he's saying that even that is a blessing. You know, any sense of wanting to advance on the path, wanting to practice, wanting to take up the spiritual life is a high blessing. So don't worry if you haven't done anything yet or don't feel like it, you're not really with it yet. Directing oneself rightly is a very high blessing. Interesting. And then um, I'll compare to the The formulation then goes into speech, action, and livelihood. Those three components, if you think about them together, they have to do with our way of being in the world. 
right? Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So we choose ways of speaking, ways of behaving, and ways of uh, making our livelihood, which everyone has to do, uh, that are non-harming and that are um, conducive to our being able to walk the path. So it's basically about relationship and action in the world in the traditional understanding of what we do next on the Eightfold Path. And look at what we have in the Mangala Sutta. Does anyone want to pick out some phrases in the next few stanzas that sound like speech, action, or livelihood? Words well spoken. Words well spoken. Right there in the next one. Jobs not left unfinished. Jobs not left unfinished. So doing things in a responsible way. Discipline well mastered. So behaving skillfully in various ways. You know, basically, uh, if you want to follow the path, develop your craft, be an honest person, uh, speak well, and you know, live in an honest, simple, high-quality way. So interesting, and then deeds that are blameless. How about that from the third one after what I last read? Deeds that are blameless. So, again, wise action. Then there's a shift in the um, Eightfold Path formulation to effort, mindfulness, and concentration those three are also considered to kind of go together, and they relate to the development of the mind or the heart. So we have external actions like speech, action, and livelihood, kind of things that other people will see, and then effort, mindfulness, and concentration is about an internal development of the mind in some way. And it's usually understood that the external, you know, behaving well externally supports our ability to meditate and um, develop ourselves internally, although that, you know, that's not presented in <coughs> this formulaic teaching. So then, there is also a shift in these verses from the Mangala Sutta. Suddenly we get to refraining from intoxicants. Well, that's maybe an external behavior. How about being uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind? We're moving, yeah, we're moving inward. So mindfulness is certainly a a stance that would be uncomplacent. And suddenly the next paragraph, or the next verse says, respect, humility, contentment, gratitude. These are entirely qualities of the mind and heart. Um, We're not talking about action in the world and livelihood anymore. So we've shifted patience, composure, seeing contemplatives. So um, again... And then we have hearing the Dhamma and discussing the Dhamma on timely occasions. So we've taken the practice in. Uh, We're making it our own. We're hearing it um, and talking about it. What comes after that? Monastic life. Yeah. Okay, so he said monastic life. We have austerity, celibacy. Okay, as lay people, that those may not apply totally directly to us. But has anybody been on retreat? Yeah, some people have gone on a meditation retreat. So at least for a temporary time, we undertake those practices, which are very conducive to concentration of the mind. 
although we all know on retreat your mind does not just settle down in concentration. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're really getting into um, letting go, you know, letting go of things that are very compelling for many people most of their lives. But in developing this practice, somehow the mind secludes itself, becomes composed, and then next we have seeing the noble truths and realizing liberation. So that is taking us back to the beginning of the path, to wise view. So seeing the noble truths is the other aspect of wise view. Remember I said at the beginning that one aspect is being able to know wholesome from unwholesome, being able to associate with the wise instead of the fools. That's one part. But seeing the noble truths uh, is a, a deeper dimension of wise view. So the Eightfold Path is kind of a loop, actually. Um, And we come back to the wisdom portion of it. And then this next one, let me read it. A mind that, when touched by the ways of the world, is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. Does anyone know what that's referring to? Emptiness, concentration, and what else? Equanimity. Equanimity, okay. Um, Yeah, these are very, certainly very refined. uh, This is a very refined mind that doesn't uh, get reactive. Something that's completely sorrowless and dustless, um, I would suggest might be the mind of an arahant. So we might be referring to someone, to the state of liberation, um, that a person becomes totally secure, that's also a um, complete safety is another formulation for Nibbana. So, but given that the Eightfold Path is a loop and keeps going around, it might be that on one round we get to equanimity and deep concentration, and then we go back and we consort again with people who are wise, refine ourselves on our way of being in the world, and as we you know, move through these blessings, at some point... Um, and the mind becomes liberated. And then interestingly, that is not the end. It's not the end of the story. We have everywhere undefeated when doing these things. People go everywhere in well-being. This is their highest blessing. So it's not that you get liberated and you float off on a cloud and you're gone. <laughs> You've transcended the world and um, you know, you're never seen from again or something. People go everywhere in well-being. So there's a sense that there's every, you can go anywhere in the world. Um, liberation opens everything to you. And um, so he, he... Let me stop there and ask if there are additional comments about how this relates to the Eightfold Path or anything else that's coming up as you read these verses. Well, usually the Eightfold Path culminates in the Four Noble Truths, but mm-hmm. it's not anywhere. Oh, it has seeing the Noble Truths, third from third verse from the end. Ah, okay. So that's, <laughs> you're right. And All right. I'm pointing out, actually, that the yep. culmination is a little bit before the end. <laughs> and then there's, then there's coming back to the world ah. in a way that is undefeated. But thank you for, yeah, for highlighting that. But one thing that you have pointed out is that um, it doesn't say, it just says seeing the noble truths. 
It doesn't say seeing the Four Noble Truths, understanding the cause of suffering, having developed the seven factors of awakening, um, this person has progressed along the Eightfold Path. Right? There's no numbers in here or anything. This, um, this teaching overall is much less systematized. Can you, is that a fair statement? It's, it's a little more poetic. It's not, it's, you know, it sort of has the steps of the Eightfold Path, but you might not pick out exactly those eight steps from this. But if you know the Eightfold Path teaching, you can find them in here, right? They're clearly related in some way. Um, maybe it's not clear. I'll be careful with the word clearly. I'll say that it's clear to me because... Um, this is my now my understanding and interpretation. I did a retreat that was um, three months long, where I chanted and read, I read and chanted the Mangala Sutta every day for about ten or fifteen minutes. So not long, but when you do that for eighty-four days in a row, um, I started to see things in it actually. And again, this is my ode to repetition and just letting the teachings work on us. Is that there came a day when I said. Oh, this is about the path. <laughs> and um, and then I looked and then it was like it just blossomed forth and I could see it. And then it was, you know, then it was cognitive, but it came from a place that was not cognitive because I didn't have that idea when I started. I just I just liked the Mongol Sutta, so I started chanting it and studying it every day. And that was what came out of it. And so now, you know, now I teach it very authoritatively. Oh, this is about the Eightfold Path. But it um, you know, it's something to be discovered. And maybe there are other, there may be very other in, different insights that could come out of it uh, through studying it. I don't mean to assert that this is the way it is, although, you know, Jan said it first, so <laughs> I didn't assert it. Um, but this is, you know, this is some of the treasure that starts to come out of these teachings as we work with them again and again. I also think this is a little less linear. You know, it doesn't say for one with this, that springs up. It just says, these are things you might want to do that bring the highest blessings. Um, and it doesn't... It, the implication is that there's a progression, and you do sort of go from associating with the right people up to realizing liberation. And there are other texts. I'm not just pulling this out of the blue, because there are other texts that have lists of how do you create the conditions for liberation. They almost all start with associating with wise friends. That's often the beginning of things that include the things you need to gather. So knowing a lot, you know, something about the other suttas helps me to understand what's going on in this one. They all echo off of each other as you read them. These really are a fairly consistent set of teachings, although there's always the one that's a little different and then that catches your attention. I think we also, I'll make another teaching point here, is that we start getting a sense in this one, maybe more than in the first one, the Avijja Sutta, the Mangala Sutta, we start to get a sense that the teachings are not only prescriptive, but also descriptive. And there's a, you can see there's a slight, there's a difference between those. You know, is this something I'm supposed to do? Like, you know, I start here, okay, I'm going to start with this one. How can I consort with the wise and not with fools? That's probably a good thing to do, to have wise friends. Um, But eventually we start getting into things that are kind of 
more descriptive. It doesn't, you know, a mind that when touched by the ways of the world is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. Well, that's a description. Um, That's not something that I can decide to do with my mind, necessarily. It emerges out of this, a little bit like this will spring up from that. Um, But there's a sense that uh, the path is something that grows within us, and that we you know, if I can be a little poetic, that we become. And we become the Eightfold Path. It's just how we are. We are these things. Um, and we can practice by pointing ourselves toward being those things, directing oneself rightly. Um, but over time, it's it's going to grow and just be how we are. If you look at a, you know, a different layer of this teaching... There's a difference in the motivation between the two of them, too. The first one is like looking for good fortune and well-being. This other one is looking to avoid shame and fear of wrongdoing. It's almost like, you know... Yeah, it's a little bit harder sounding, isn't yeah. it? That's very interesting. So it says... You're right. So it says, um, ignorance is the forerunner into entry upon unwholesome states. And this one is more about true knowledge is the forerunner of entry upon wholesome states, yes, with a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing. So, the mo- you're right, the motivation presented is a little different. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for your relatingness to the path, because actually some of the language in the Mangala Sutta, um, I felt it, it was kind of pushing my buttons at first, uh-huh. because of the, you know, sort of do your job right, take care of your parents, austerity, celibacy, it kind of was very... It was kind of ringing this like Protestant work ethic. Oh yeah, yeah. Thou shalt not language, and then um, it was helpful for me to see another way to look at it mm. as, a bunch, as opposed to it being a bunch of thou shalts. Thou shalts and thou shalt nots. It's yeah. true. So this is actually a really good point, um, and I'm glad you said it because every one of us, well, probably most of us, um, walk in. Well, first of all, all of us are products of the. 20th century. I know it's the 21st century now, but we were all born in the 20th century, right? And so we come from a society of that time. Many of us um, are from a Judeo-Christian background of some kind, and even if not, if we've been living in this culture for some length of time, we've started to absorb it, because this culture very much has that, invisibly, for those who are here, most don't see it. But we carry that in. You know, I guarantee you that the Buddha had not heard of the Protestant work ethic because he was speaking before the birth of Christ, <laughs> apparently. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, of course, he's talking about, you know, deeper psychological things that have just been formulated a certain way in Christianity. But we should be aware of the personal lenses that we're bringing also. And yes, these texts do press buttons. I said some of them are going to be disagreeable and disturbing. And sometimes that's because we don't understand the language or something, but sometimes it's because a particular word that's used or a way that something is phrased brings up something from our background. All those horrible times that I had to do confession or the preacher saying certain things um, or my parents or my schoolmates, something, or just some experience that I had. You know, just a human experience that I had, and then a certain word forever after triggers me, and here it is in this sutta. Uh, and so this is all part of mindfulness practice, actually. 
is to be aware of what is coming up in our mind as we read this. We are absolutely not asked to read these as religious, scriptural, absolute truth being given to us by a fully enlightened being and we just have to believe it. That's not the way these teachings are offered. They're offered as explorations, as um, mirrors into our own mind, as instructions for our practice. This is why I talked about there's different ways to read them. I suppose we could add to the list that I gave a psychological reading. How does this impact me? What does it bring up from my past? What might I be able to heal through um, understanding what this text is saying? And maybe at different times we'll read them in different ways. For example, you know, doing this sutta so intensively and chanting it every day, I don't normally read them like that. That was when I was on retreat. Um, you know, other times I, I do the hyperlink thing and I read a sutta and I say, ooh, that looks interesting. And then I say, I wonder what he means by this word. And so I go and I look up a bunch of suttas about that. And then I say, oh. And then I read the end note and it says something else. And I, and I go and look at that. And I get sort of, over time, I get a wandering picture of something. Um, or you can sit down and read an entire samyutta in here. If they're not that long, you could read one and um, get a sense of what relates to a particular topic. So there's all kinds of different ways. And we can learn for ourselves, we can only learn for ourselves actually through experience, what comes alive for us, how they're coming alive for us. Yeah. This might be a hyperlink Great. <laughs> question. <laughs> but um, the use of the word deva, do you think that's speaking literally, metaphorically? Both in this sutta and others, like when that term is, you know, what's really being, mm. what, what, what are they really saying, or what, what's your sense of that, or what hyperlinking you might have done on that? Yeah, we are offered, in the Buddhist teachings, we're offered a particular cosmology. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's presented, I'll be careful with that word, because that's a very big, abstract-sounding word, um, the Buddha had to use the language and things that were meaningful to people of his time when he was teaching. You know, spiritual teachers, we, we love and revere and respect them and listen to what they say because they speak to us somehow. They speak to our heart. And so it's important that Western teachers use you know, ways that connect with Western people. And the Buddha um, did not hesitate at all to use understandings from his time um, ways of speaking from his time. And uh, there's also in there presented a view, a worldview that includes gods, devas, um, hell realms of various kinds. Some people, there are different approaches to this. Some people say, well, it was literal, you know, those things really do exist and we just don't know about them, we don't understand them, and, you know, something like that. Or they can say, well, that was what people thought at the time, a little bit the way I introduced this. People thought that at the time, so it was meaningful if he used references like that. And so we can just understand, well, that's some Indian culture thing. And I could transpose my idea of angels onto that if I wanted, although they're really not the same idea. But I can sort of get the concept by understanding Western angels from Christianity. Um, or another approach that people take is to say, that the Buddha really was talking about the mind. And so 
the things that he presents that sound like gods or devils or rebirth or other things refer to states of mind and um, various psychophysical effects. So a deva might be our most amazing, beautiful self. You know, we've all had the moment when we, we don't know how, but something came over us and we acted with perfect generosity in the moment. We might have one shining thing that we remember from our past. That was our deva moment. And we've also had our fool moments, <laughs> right? Um, and so there are, for example, teachings that say, you know, if you um, speak in this way, you'll be reborn in hell. And we say, well, what that means is if I speak in this way, I'm going to feel terrible the next day. I'm going to go through the hell realm of, oh, my gosh, you know, how am I going to clean this up? And it's really going to be a lot of suffering. Um, So some people like to understand it that way, or they understand rebirth as the ongoing creation of different mind states. How many mind states have you had today? A lot. If you see each of those as a life, you know, I was born into anger, and then that faded, and then I was born into something else. So some people can understand the teachings that way. I don't think the Buddha was offering a philosophy. And that's um, maybe a bold statement in that some people will say that they like Buddhism because it's more a philosophy than a religion. And that's it's not so much that I'm contrasting philosophy and religion. What I'm saying is that the Buddha did not wasn't offering an abstract view of the universe like you know, these are the um, laws of physics, or, you know, these are the laws of the mind, and this is how it is. I think what he was offering was something much more subtle, which is, if you adopt this view and these practices and this way of behaving and this um, way of being in the world, you set your mind up for, liber- for something called liberation, um, which is, you know, a complete transformation of the psychophysical experience that we have such that it doesn't include suffering. It doesn't include what's called dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, suffering, uh, the challenges. You'll still have a body that's going to die, but there, there isn't any suffering associated with that. It's almost hard for us to imagine, very hard for us to imagine what that is. But I don't think he was saying... This is how it is. He's saying, if you want to end suffering, this is how to see the world, this is how to act, this is how to develop your mind and heart. It's different. The one reason I say that is that the very first, remember the Diga Nikaya, the very first of the sutta collections, the very first sutta in the Diga Nikaya, and therefore the very first teaching of the entire body of teachings in the canon, is a discourse that includes 63 views that were common at the time of the Buddha. Religious, philosophical views, and also views that people develop during meditation, like they have a certain experience in concentration, and they come out saying, my God, I've seen that the universe is infinite, or I've seen that the universe is shaped like a donut. Okay, it doesn't have that one. But um, 63 (laughs) different views or formulations that one might bring into the world and say, this is how it is, this is my view, Um, this is my stance. And he says every single one of these is limited. And then, so then you're you're waiting with bated breath, well, what's he going to offer? At the end, what he offers is, I know 
things as they arise and pass. You know, I know the arising and passing of my experience, particularly feeling tone is what he points out in this one. And that's that's not a complete description of what the um, what he says at the end of the sutta, but essentially he comes down to this is it. Our experience is what we have to work with. What we have in the body, what we have in the mind, this is it. It's not about creating a universe that has certain laws and I'm a being in it acting in certain ways. There's just this to work with. And um, how can we start from where we are and transform it such that it doesn't suffer? It's different. It's different from philosophy or Western religion. Where is uh, the Book of Eights in The Book of Eights is a chapter in the Sutta Nipata, which is in the Kudaka Nikaya. You're thinking of the Gil has just published a book yeah. about that. That one, and I'm glad you brought it up, because the Book of Eights is considered, it's much of it is about views and about... Um, not adopting, not clinging to our views and our philosophies. Um, at the time of the Buddha, there was a culture of religious debate. It was done publicly. You had to stand up, declare your thing, and somebody else would declare his thing, and then you'd kind of battle it out philosophically, and whoever was smarter or more eloquent was the winner. And, you know, people, then you know, got enormous egos based on being able to state their teaching the best, and then they felt, other ones felt defeated and dejected, and their head was hanging, and there's all these images that go with it. And the Buddha, um, this this book of eights, many of the teachings in there uh, say, a person who is free doesn't engage in that. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't get stuck on views, don't accept them, don't reject them, um, just you know, find a way of living that doesn't depend on having a religious or philosophical view. It's a pretty radical thing, actually. Um, if we think what we're learning is the Buddha's teachings, and that's my view, and that's what I'm going to hold, he keeps pointing us away from that, more toward practice. This is what you do. This is um, Now, of course, the first step of the path is wise view. <laughs> but that might be that we're supposed to be wise about views and not cling to them. Nothing is to be clung to. That was one of the last things he said before he died. Nothing in this world is fit to be clung to. Free your mind. So, um, this, and the Book of Eights, by the way, is considered by scholars to be one of the very earliest texts. Largely, we don't know if it was untouched over time, but probably one of the very first ones, before all this formulation with the numbers and the lists and the systematization, which could have still come in the Buddhist lifetime. He taught for 45 years, but this one is very, very basic and fundamental. So I recommend um, this book on the Atakavaga, the Book of Eights, written by Gil Fronsdahl. All right, we're nearing the end. This, um, is there more? Any, any other comments? Yeah. Can you explain seeing contemplatives? Yeah, so you're referring to this line in here. Seeing contemplatives or contemplatives. Um, that's meant to be a noun. So a person who is um, who has taken on practice as a way of life. 
I would say, is someone that could be a contemplative. And, of course, he means people who are practicing the Eightfold Path, who have taken on uh, these teachings as their practice and way of life. But generally speaking, that word means someone who views their life as a practice. And interestingly, you know, not everyone does, but there are there's something shared in common, isn't there, by people who see life and its challenges as something to practice with, as opposed to something to get through or deal with or avoid or something. It's like, oh, let me see what I can learn from this. And these people include actually not just spiritual practitioners or mystics or some such, but what about artists or um, athletes or um, craftspeople of various kinds, people who have a passion for really developing something, developing themselves, allowing it to shape them in their lives. There's a certain quality of mind that goes with that approach to life. And... um, I have a lot of respect for people who practice in some way, and I find that I resonate with folks like that, whatever their chosen practice is, sometimes. And so there's, it's a nice distinction to have a, a word for that and say that it's important to go see people like that. You might learn something. All right, well... I hope that you might be inspired to learn a bit more about the Pali Canon, and we do offer opportunities here to engage with other people, and my teaching style is something like this. We'll be reading them out loud and then talking about them, and, but, you know, on your own, of course, you can engage, engage however you'd like, and I don't know, I just find these texts have so greatly enhanced my practice, um, that... I'm totally inspired to share them with people. Thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.